0: Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear David Drake.
1: This was like, hey, are you in a bathroom? Uh, no? <laughs> yes, you are. <laughs> Everywhere's a bathroom now. That and
0: more. But first, are you in Seattle or Portland? Pitch us your stories and you might be included in our Seattle show. Our Seattle show is on November 18th and our Portland show is on November 19th. So pitch us by going to risk-show.com slash submissions, and to get your tickets to attend either of those shows, go to risk-show.com slash tour. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Hello kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, this is Hakan Kornstad behind me now, and we're calling this week's episode Unraveling. (laughs) These are stories of uh, things not going as people had hoped, and how they dealt with that. All right, around the corner, we have our Scary Stories show at Caveat in New York City. It's going to be 7 p.m. on October 20th. It'll also be live streamed on YouTube. You can get tickets for the live show at Caveat or the live stream on YouTube at risk-show.com tour. So October 20th, Scary Stories. Let's get to today's stories. In the meantime, we're going to hear a couple from our last show at Caveat. We're going to hear from Maureen Ferguson in a little bit. Such a treat. Her first time ever doing the show. She came up from Philly, and we know we got to have Maureen on the show again. But before that, we're going to hear from David Drake. David Drake returns to the show. You can find him at daviddrakecomedy.com. And here he is now with a story we call, My Name is David Drake.
1: Like Kevin said, my name is David Drake, and that's pretty much all you gotta know about uh, this story. Uh, that's it. Name is David Drake. I'm not the only one. There's uh, there's a lot of us out there, and I know that because uh, when Facebook first came out, we all started friending each other. Because <laughs> no one knew what the hell Facebook even was. So it was like, I guess you'd friend your own name. And so I'm friends with like 30, 40 David Drakes on Facebook. And sometimes I'll post something, and then they'll all like it. And I just want you guys to know that. It's not me figuring out a way to like my thing 40 times. It's a supportive community <laughs> of like-named people. But there is one enemy, and that is David Drake, the author. Ooh, oh no. Uh, I don't like David Drake, the author, because uh, like he took the David Drake website... He took the David Drake Twitter handle. He took the David Drake Instagram. If you Google David Drake, his books come up, which, hey, baby, I'm in show business. I I want that stuff. But, you know, when you see me and you go and you Google me, uh, his tank sex novels show up. And I'm not sure if they are tank sex novels, but that's what I think they are based on the covers, which are generally a tank and then a hot, naked lady, and then, like, a dragon. It's like if you ask any 12-year-old boy to make a cover, Uh, it's that. It feels problematic, and maybe I'm being a little too harsh, but I I haven't read any of these books, so maybe they're not uh, that. I did read one half of one sentence of a review for a book called The Tank Lords, And uh, this review went, in this novel about dangerous tankers who bang chambermaidens, and I was like, all right, yeah, yeah, I got it. I think I know what's going on here. Just another dangerously horny fantasy author couldn't make it with the ladies in the life, so he bangs them in the tanks in his mind. Uh, That is the face of the David Drake community on... on the internet that's our mascot not great so anyway i'm in chicago a few months ago and i'm out late and i'm eating these like chicago hot dogs which chicago's real like fanatical about their hot dogs you know they're like no ketchup like they won't let you put ketchup on it as if it will like ruin the integrity of the hot dog Which, I mean, none of us even really know what a hot dog is, right? Like, if someone was like, it's cigarettes and dog, you'd be like, all right. That checks out. Like, my agreement with the hot dog is it's purely... I can't squirt ketchup into my mouth, so I cover the hot... The hot dog is like a way to get the ketchup in that looks okay. That's what I think. But Chicago doesn't let you do that. They're like, how are you going to taste the shoe that fell into the meat grinder? If you cover it in ketchup. So I'm out late, and I'm and the only thing open are these hot dog places. Cause like I don't know why late night food has to be so horrible for you. Like I'm not out late because I hate myself. You know, it's like I don't know why they can't have just like one second chance salad spot at like two a.m. Just like hey man, you're out late, you made some mistakes, but it's never too late to turn it all around. Here a salad and a kiss. Mwah. Get out. <laughs> fix it. You can fix it. If I ever make it big, big time, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to open like a late-night kale spot. And you can, yeah, baby, you can eat kale and, and do cocaine late at night. I think there's a real market for that. There's, I know about like a 1,000 vegans who have no problem doing cocaine. Yeah. It's like, oh, is that an animal? No, I can't. That would be murder. Oh, is that cocaine? yeah, yeah, yeah I'll do cocaine. No one's ever been murdered over cocaine. <laughs> Chop it up. Yeah, except for everybody. <laughs> so I'm out at this late-night hot dog place, and I'm just shoveling these ketchup hot dogs into my mouth because uh, I'm g- gross. And uh, they're all covered in this Chicago-specific pickled pepper called Jardinera, which exists purely to break down the lining of your stomach. <laughs> and I'm chasing these with a Monster Energy drink, which is Windex. Uh, so I feel horrible. I feel really bad, and it's really late, and my hotel is two and a half miles away, but I'm like, I gotta gotta walk, you know, because this is a true walk of shame. Like, shame is motivating my body to walk out the door because I just ate these hot dogs and I chased them with a a can with a claw on it. Like, I feel gross. I feel embarrassed about who I am, so I'm like, "I I gotta just walk this off. So, I start walking toward my hotel it 's a two and a half mile walk, and about like while i 'm walking like my my stomach lining is just burning away and uh, about like a mile and a half in, I feel it, it burns away completely, and I feel this raw hot dog slap up against my now unprotected stomach and it 's a pain so intense I feel like alone where <laughs> I I had to, like, drop to my knees, like, oh, I have no friends. Oh, no. Like, I felt, oh, God. Uh, I felt sad and scared. You you ever have this feeling when you're out and you're like, oh, man, it'd be really great if there was, like, a a bathroom around right now? Uh, This was not that. This was like, hey, are you in a bathroom? Uh, No? (laughs) Yes, you are. Everywhere is a bathroom now. I was like, oh my God, I'm going to shit on the street. I'm like a father and I have a wife and I'm going to shit right here on the street. So I'm in, I'm like, I, I look around and I'm in Ravenswood, which is like this residential neighborhood and there's nothing around. And the only thing open is this 7-Eleven. And I'm like, that's got to be it. So I go to 7-Eleven and I, like, I try to look a little better and I like, I'm not exclusively thinking about taking a shit right now. And I walk up to the cashier. And I'm like, I excuse me, uh, would it be okay if I used your bathroom? And then she's like, oh, no, there's, uh, there's no bathrooms here. And I'm like, but there is, though. Uh, this is a place of business. They don't just not give you a bathroom. Just uh, let me, come on. Let me use the bathroom. And then she says, no, 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 there's, there's no bathroom. And then I look into this woman's cold, dead, shitty eyes. <laughs> And I realized she really isn't going to let me use the bathroom. And I both accept and realize that I'm about to shit outside the 7-Eleven parking lot. And this is a big moment for me. Uh, I I started thinking about the time I I knew I was going to marry my wife. It was like she was trying to hail this cab in the rain in Chicago and she had these little red shoes and and these cabs just kept zipping by and she'd stomp her feet in anger and then she'd look at me and she'd be all frustrated and I was like, "Ah, I'm going to marry that woman. And this moment had similar weight, right? It's like, all right, the world is one way. I'm going to shit in that parking lot. The world will be something else, but it won't be the way it was. And then the cashier says, are you okay? And I realize I've just been staring at her for like a half half a minute. And so I'm like, all right, yeah, I'm okay. I just... I got to go grab a couple of things. So I, I am going to sit in the parking lot, but I do have like a half uh, a minute to like get the things that I need. So I go in to the 7-Eleven and I grab a, a single roll of toilet paper. And then I'm like, no, 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 this is too obvious. I came in here all bathroom, 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 bathroom let me use a bathroom. Like, she's going to know. So I grabbed a family size pack. Like, oh, this will throw her off or, you know, like, oh, he's just taking care of his family. I... <laughs> I bring that to the the register, but then I start to like pat it like it's porn or something. I'm like, well, I'll take a men's health and a lighter and a, uh, I guess some toilet paper. And then I'm trying to make small talk, like I'm not gonna shit in the parking lot. I'm like looking at the oh, the abs would, uh, would be nice. She's like, what? I'm like, well, that's uh, yep. And I grab my things and then I walk out of the Seven Eleven. And I walk about ten feet, and then I turn around, and nobody's looking. And then I walk around the Seven Eleven, and behind the Seven Eleven is a dumpster. And I'm I'm still holding on to some shred of humanity. I'm like, oh, the animals shit on the earth, so I'm a man, and I shit in the dumpster. So that's where I will be doing that. And so I take my pants uh, completely off, totally off and I drape them over the dumpster, and then I climb on top of the dumpster, and I have my hands on the back and my feet on the front, like some real, like a Daffy Duck nightmare. (laughs) And I have this this street lamp, and it's just shrouding the whole moment for me really nicely, Uh, and I catch my reflection in a car door, and I'm like, oh, I felt a little vulnerable, (laughs) to be honest. I was like, "Oh no! Like I am exposed to the street, and if somebody sees me, I I, there's no explanation for what this is. I'm not an animal. I'm a man, and that's why. Like, uh, no, you're a sex offender." We're, we're putting you in a registry. So I started thinking about what it would be like to be a sex offender, and I was like, I can't shit in the dumpster anymore. And so I climb off the dumpster, but by then it's too late. So I run over to the car, and I squat down by the driver's side seat, and, and I take a shit there. And I'll be honest, I mean, I don't really want to tell you guys this, but it's like a true n- nightmare. It's, it's like if Quentin Tarantino directed Taking a Shit. <laughs> Where like a leg flies off and there's blood and glass breaks and it's a real horrible thing. And then I look around the parking lot and I realize, oh, this is the only car in the parking lot. Oh, this is probably the cashier's car. She's going to th- come out. She's going to think this is like a weird revenge thing. Like he he came in here. Ah, I need that. And then, uh, you know, this is I took it out on her. So I was like, man, I got to get out of here. Uh, so uh, I take care of myself. I leave all this trash behind me. Like I have this family sized pack of toilet paper that I don't take with me. I leave all of this right by the driver's side seat and <laughs> it, whatever. So, uh, once I'm taking care of myself, I walk back to my hotel, I take a long shower, and I think about what I've done, and I'm just embarrassed, and I'm, I'm, an, I'm aging. I'm 34, and I keep getting older, and what would my daughter think? Like, I'm like thinking all these things, and then after the shower, I climb into bed, and I'm like, you know, whatever. You know, like, this is how people grow, right? Little stuff like this. I'm just growing. Uh, you never stop growing. And so then I close my eyes and I sleep. And then the next day I wake up and uh, I fly back to New York and I've been away for a little while so I'm picking up uh, groceries and I go to pay for the groceries and I'm, I'm looking for my credit card which I always have my credit card right here in my like front pocket. And it's like I can't. Find, I'm like, where is? And then this sound returns to my mind, and it's a sound that didn't dawn on me when it was happening, but it's definitely dawning on me now. And it's the sound of a credit card hitting the pavement, and I realize that I have just left my credit card right next to this pile of shit that I left next to this cashier lady's car, kind of like the wet bandits in Home Alone. <laughs> We're like, <laughs> they clog your sink, so you know it's them. But for me, I take a shit on your car and then I leave all my credit information behind or whatever. So I'm like, holy shit, like, it's gonna be my name right next to this pile of shit. She's gonna Google me, she's gonna find me, she's gonna figure out who I am. And for the first time in my life, I'm like, thank God for that other David Drake. Yeah. Thank God so much.
2: What is this?
1: I have no idea what this is. It could be a pile of shit out of somebody's asshole. Poo-poo.
2: You can't do that here.
1: What if I gotta take a shit, though? this shit for real? This sort of thing never would have happened under my supervision. You've ruined everything.
0: This is Poo-Poo.
1: What is the matter with you guys? I don't have to answer to you. I do what I want.
3: Shit here. Again. I want to do it again. Get that filthy animal out of here. One, two,
1: three. Duty.
3: Say nothing.
0: What a crock of
2: shit. It was the week before Thanksgiving in 2011 and I was headed into work uh, at a boutique I owned at the time. So just frazzled, super stressed out because it's the holiday season, right? And I'm working retail. So I open up the shop and I listen to my voicemail and there's this crazy fucking message from a cousin that I didn't really know talking about my father. But I couldn't really make out what she was saying. The only words I could understand were surgery, consent, and next of kin. So I was like, this probably isn't good news okay and I should mention I did not have a good relationship with my dad a nicer person might say he had his demons I would say yeah but he was a dick okay and thankfully my mom left him when I was pretty young so I didn't have as much exposure to him as I could have So growing up, we had a real, like, on-again-off-again relationship, you know, one of those will-they-won't-they pay-child-support things. Spoiler alert, they won't. (laughs) But now it's 2011, and I hadn't seen my dad in years. Now, I would talk to him on the phone sometimes, but that was normally just him calling me, saying the same drunken shit he always did, like... That Gwenny is really something special. Gwenny was his pet name for Gwen Stefani, who he was oddly obsessed with. (laughs) Or how he wished he was back in prison so he could just sit around and play chess all day. My favorite, of course, he didn't stab his girlfriend. She fell on the knife. Now, Why did I still talk to this dude at all, right? I don't know, man. Maybe I pitied him. Or maybe I just wanted a dad. Now, when you have a shitty parent, you spend a lot of time grieving them while they're still alive. But you hang on to this hope, this possibility that someday it might be different and maybe they'll change. So I replayed that voicemail, trying to make sense of it, when my father's sister calls me. Now, Aunt Marcy tells me there'd been an accident. My dad fell out of an attic. He was drunk and on some kind of pills. And he sustained a severe head injury. She also told me that I was technically his next of kin and would I speak with the neurosurgeon and give consent. To operate well it's the week before Thanksgiving and I'm still in my store which is now filling up with people so I grab the phone and navigate through all the customers and slip out the back door where I call a doctor who tells me it doesn't look good it doesn't look good and if they don't do the surgery now my dad is definitely going to die but the prognosis wasn't great either. Best case scenario at this point is he would survive but be in a vegetative state forever, if he even made it through the procedure. Now, I didn't know what my dad's wishes were, all right? I didn't know much about this guy at all except for he was a violent alcoholic who happened to really like Gwen Stefani. So I asked the doctor what he would do in my position And the doctor said, he would do the surgery because the brain is unpredictable and sometimes the outcome can surprise you. So I said, okay, let's do it, let's do the surgery. Now my dad survived that surgery and he was doing better than anyone expected. And when I talked to the doctor, he explained it was because my father's brain was so pickled in his skull already from long-term alcohol abuse, that injury did not do the same damage (laughs) as it would have to a healthy brain. Now, I always thought alcoholism would be the death of this man. No. Alcoholism saved his life, okay? But look, I hadn't gone to see him at the hospital. I didn't know if I wanted to, you know, but people started pressuring me, kind of hinting at this guilt I might feel if he were to die. And that's the thing about growing up in an Irish Catholic family, right, is guilt, guilt, and family. But was this man even really my family? You know, I was also in the hospital with a brain injury as a baby, but my dad wasn't there. He was out literally dancing the night away as though somehow he did know that he was in fact living the last days of disco while my mom sat in the hospital alone. So Thanksgiving came, and I'm sitting at my mother's house. I'm sitting at my mother's house, and I'm surrounded by the love of my family my real family but so that guilt (laughs) started wriggling its way in because I'm picturing my father alone in a hospital room on Thanksgiving and I don't know it felt somehow even too shitty for him so I look at my husband Dan and I'm like Dan we got to go to the hospital so we go to the hospital, and I'm walking into this humming room, and I see this man, gaunt and frail man, just machines shoved into him. And I look at this man, my father, and suddenly I feel, I feel gratitude, okay? I feel this deep, immense gratitude that can't even be contained in my body as tears just pour out of my eyes because I love my life. And if everything hadn't happened exactly as it had, including having this man, this flawed and broken man, as my father, I wouldn't have this life. So I grab his hand first time I've even touched my father in over a decade and I hold it and I look at him and blurt out I forgive you I, I forgive you dad I, I love you and then something amazing happens he opens his eyes he opens his eyes and starts moving his lips trying to speak now remember this man was not expected to survive let alone regain consciousness and now here he is trying to communicate with me on thanksgiving night but i can't quite make out what he's saying you know so i look to my husband dan and i'm like what what is it what what's he saying but dan looks a little uncomfortable okay and like like he knows something that I don't so I'm like what is it Dan what what and he finally answers me um uh, I I th- I think he's trying to say uh, fuck you <laughs> sure enough <laughs> I look over at my father, who's now feebly attempting to flip us off, and he is very clearly mouthing, fuck you. So look, sometimes the outcome can surprise you. (laughs) But sometimes, on Thanksgiving, in a hospital room, having just met your husband for the first time, while being in the midst of a medical miracle. Sometimes your dad still just a dick. (laughs) Thank you guys so much.
0: This is Risk, this is James behind me now, and we just heard from Maureen Ferguson, who you can find on Instagram at Maureen Fergusar. And before that, a little interstitial by our episode editor, Jeff Barr. Folks, as you know, uh, 2019 was a surprisingly rough year for Risk financially. And then 2020 was, I mean, almost the end of risk. So, uh, we are still very, very, very much trying to recover, trying to keep the show running. And one of the ways that has become so crucial to us to keep the show running. And one of the ways we are so, so grateful to our fans is over at Patreon on patreon.com slash risk. If you become a member or raise your donation, uh, there's so much bonus content over there. The latest is we just put up an anecdote compilation. These are your anecdotes. Risk fans sending them in from Ty Gentile, Alexandra Sasha Ballin, and Rebecca Tally. I started
1: aiming directly for the pothole and sped up. And I was imagining like, you know, people like cheering me on, right? Like my imaginary audience, you know, woohoo, this is going to be so great. She's going to fly right over the pothole.
0: And that was all edited by music maker and music software maker, Robert Fulham, who you've also heard doing some of our interstitials every now and then. So thank you to Robert and all of our anecdote tellers and check it out, folks, if you become a member... Over at patreon.com slash risk, there's that and so much else. And if you want to make a one-time donation, that is at paypal.me slash risk show. Folks, if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries, if you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues, June's Journey objects you're finding and trying to assess whether they're meaningful or not you collect information filling out your own photo album and you're keeping track of all the characters there's romance there's scandalous family secrets it feels like a really fun play or movie and i've only made it through like five scenes but i am told you could crack the case All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Our final story on this week's episode. You know how we're always asking you guys to pitch us your stories. I mean, we make so many incredible discoveries that way. This story was shared with us by Jesse Bradley. He's the author of the novel Teenage Wasteland, an American love story. And his cartoons can be found on Instagram at Questionable Decision Comics. And our new editor, Taj Easton, wove the music throughout this one. So without further ado then, here is Jesse Bradley with a story we call Learning to Drive.
4: It's a Saturday morning, the last week of April of 2019, a week before I'm turning 40. I am in this off-white Hyundai that the National Safety Council uses for their driving tests. The upholstery itself has a faint cigarette smoke smell to it. The steering wheel is looser than I want it to be, and I'm already on edge as is, and it's freaking me out a little bit more. As my proctor is getting himself situated and ready to get me started taking this particular driving test, I've got two things going on right now in my head. One, am I finally getting to get over my fear of driving? Because it's terrified me for such a long, long time. And two, is getting my license going to save my marriage? So my fear of driving began when I was eight years old. My mom and my stepdad and me, we were in our compact orange, yellowish Datsun. They were smoking cigarettes and chatting it up as usual. Right across the street, we're at a red light, and right across the street, there's this El Camino that runs past the red. And it hits the driver's side of our car. I'm fine, and my mom is fine, but my stepdad, he ends up with a neck injury. And he comes back from the doctor, and he has a bottle of pain pills. He is in so much pain that... The pain pills run out sooner than expected. And so we have to go to the ER to get more pain pills because he's in constant pain. And somehow this pain spreads to my mom's neck. So we keep having to go to the ER more and more because the pain pills keep running out faster and faster and faster. And as they're taking these pain pills, their marriage gets uglier and uglier and more violent. And they end up getting this whole horrible divorce where he never talks to her again. After watching their marriage completely just blow up because of this car accident, my child brain is going, I I don't know if I ever want to drive. Driving, it's a lot of responsibility, and this one accident just completely destroyed their marriage. And I don't ever want to do that to somebody's life. So I vowed that I would never, ever, 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 ever drive for as long as I lived. I'm honest about my status on my online dating profiles. I want the people who are going to date me to know fully about here I don't drive and you have to really find out why I don't drive. I do eventually get a learner's permit around like 16 because my mom won't get off my back about driving and in order to appease her I'm like okay I'm gonna get my permit but that's it that's as far as I go my mom also is not exactly one of those people who believes that men should be scared or emotionally vulnerable when she confronts me about it about why I won't get my full license I sit there in silence and I never explain to her why I don't drive and eventually she completely gives up and just stays quiet about it as I've graduated college and have gotten careers and jobs and, and whatnot. So I want to be upfront with my potential romantic partners that I don't drive. When I met Janine in December of 2012, I give her the full reason why I don't drive, because this accident has just left this psychic scar on me where I won't drive at all. Janine, she doesn't entirely believe me until... I accept a promotion where, based on where I live in Orlando, I would have to take about three buses and three hours to commute one way. You know, to do a six-hour commute every day, that's an impossible... You can't live a life like that. So Janine, she's like, you know what? Let me teach you how to drive. Let me help you drive. So we go to this high school. We're in her Gold Volkswagen Jetta. I'm practicing turning and parking and just driving around in a parking lot, slow as possible. And the entire time, my back is just soaked. It is drenched in sweat in 60 degree weather because I'm having this persistent panic attack and I'm strangling the steering wheel for dear life because this is really, really scary. And there's no cars around at all. It's just us in this parking lot. And the entire time, Janine is being a good girlfriend, going, you're doing fine. You're doing great. Everything, you are doing a wonderful, wonderful job. And I am just a panic attack the entire time for about an hour until we park. And she looks over to me after I turn off the ignition. She goes, I get it. I get why you don't drive. It really does scare you. I'm sure you're going to find another way to like do this whole commute thing. And I do. I end up moving way, way closer to where I end up working so that way I can commute by bus and by bicycle. So we do eventually get married. And two months before this driving test, our marriage reaches a breaking point all because of a dog. A dog of all things. In December of 2016, We had a miscarriage, and one of her ways of coping was to get this King Charles Cavalier dog. She's ruby-colored. Her name is Lorelai. King Charles Cavaliers are not known for being athletic dogs, and and Lorelai is the most athletic King Charles Cavalier. She jumps like a couple of feet in the air. You can run her to death by playing fetch, like... Playing fetch is her favorite thing. She loves hanging out in the yard. I've never seen a King Charles Cavalier do that until she brings Lorelai home. And the miscarriage, we never really deal with it. She gets a dog. We both get really just focused in our jobs. And we just, we never really totally address it. And what happens on this day is our pest control guy just finishes spraying inside of her house he also sprays outside of the house. And then he leaves. And Lorelai, she paws at the door. It's because I know she wants to go to the bathroom. And so I let her out. And about 10 minutes pass by, and I don't hear her pawing at the door. I'm thinking, like, okay, maybe Lorelai's just doing what she loves. She loves hanging out in the yard, just sunning herself in the grass. I'm going to check on her to see how she's doing. So I go out to the backyard... And I don't see her there. I call her. I'm like, Lorelai, Lorelai. And then I look to my left and I see that the gate was left open. Oh, fuck. Our pest control guy left the gate open. Lorelai has escaped. She she can run. She can sprint. So I have no idea how far she has gotten. And I have to be the one to tell Janine. So I I go inside, and I tell Janine. It looks like the pest control guy left the gate open, and Lorelai got out. Janine's eyes narrow. The thing about Janine is she is someone who looks like a librarian or a bookstore clerk that you would have a crush on. So I forget that she also has this tremendous rage, It is like a volcano waiting to erupt. And it always surprises me that she gets angry quickly. How could you fucking let the dog escape? How could you leave the fucking gate open? How could you not check that the gate was closed? And I am so upset that she would think that I would let this happen to her dog. That this was like a plan by me, that I was going to let Lorelai out and have her escape. So that way she would be freaking out about it and that she would be upset at me. And I'm more interested in being right than de-escalating the situation now because she has accused me of doing this. It's not my fucking fault that pest control guy left that gate open. She pauses for a moment. She gets her keys, and she gets into her SUV, and starts looking for Lorelai without me. (sighs) So I take a deep breath, trying to get my heart to calm down, and okay, I gotta be the one who finds Lorelai first to make this right. So I I go outside, and I look across the street, and I see Lorelai frolicking in the front yard across the street. She is so happy to be out in the real world, just frolicking about, like, this is great. I'm in the outside world. Everything is awesome. And I I immediately go, come here, Lorelai. Come here, girl. And then she just sprints across the street and she runs into the house. And she's just so happy. She's so happy that she's gotten a taste of freedom, not knowing the, the panic that she has caused her parents. And I text Janine and I let her know, like, hey, uh, I got her. She's here. She's home. Come home. Janine comes home. She's petting Lorelei. She's like, don't do that again. You scared me. I love you. Completely ignoring me because she's still incredibly upset of my so-called master plan to let the dog escape. And then after petting her for a couple of minutes and telling her these things, she goes into the bedroom and shuts the door. I'm waiting to find out what's next, and I start pacing in the kitchen because I know that she's going to say something to me, that she's gathering her thoughts in the bedroom, and I don't know what she's going to say. I thought maybe, you know, I found the dog. I made it right. Everything should be good. And then Janine opens the door, and as calm as I've ever heard her, she goes, this isn't working. And the this... Is our marriage. It hasn't been working for a while. I look back at her and I go, yeah, you're right. This isn't working. It feels like this big weight is lifted off of both of us. We have not addressed the miscarriage. We have not addressed this big thing that has happened to us. I feel so much better that I know that this is going to end. And we start talking about how we're going to split our things. And how we're going to sell our house, how we're going to tell our friends, how we are going to disassemble this life that we have made together for about the last six years. But yet, funny enough, our relationship gets better as we're ending it. We end up being way more honest with each other than we have ever been, even while we were originally dating. Our sex life is better It actually gets better Like pre-miscarriage Like we were starting to date again There's no longer this this weight Of marriage holding us back After about a month Of this weird purgatory that we're in Janine comes to me And she goes I want us to try again But I need something from you And I love Janine So much So I go okay What do you need? She goes, Jess, I need you to learn how to drive. I need you to get your license. I need you to be able to take care of me and to be able to do things because I can't be the only one who's driving me and doing these things anymore. She knows how terrifying driving is to me. It scares the shit out of me. But also, I'm more scared to lose her. Over the last month, I'm seeing how good we are and how good we can be. However, I don't want things to go back to the way they were, to not being open and honest that our sex life goes from a couple of times a week to nothing. So in order for me to like be in this relationship and to make this work, there's something that I need as well, and I need to tell her. I don't hold back. I go, okay, Janine... I will drive, but you need to keep this intimacy up that we've had. I know that you're able to do it. You want me to overcome this huge fear. I need you to keep working on the intimacy. I'm happy to learn how to drive, but this is what I need to. And Janine goes, okay. And I'm so thrilled that I have my person back. And now I just have to learn how to drive. So right away, I enroll with the National Safety Council to take driving lessons and I'm popping CBD gummies to, to help dull the panic attacks I'm constantly having while learning how to drive. Cause they teach you how to drive in neighborhoods and in local streets on highways. It's this constant panic attack. I'm trying to unlearn all of this trauma that I've been holding onto about driving. And I only practiced once with Janine. Because she has this boat of an SUV versus the Jetta. She's not explaining things clearly about, like, why do you have to sit on the left? Wouldn't it make more sense to sit in the middle like you do on, like, a motorcycle? How do you know when you're close to the curb? Like, these types of things. And she's not able to give me a straight answer. I, mean, I get so frustrated trying to drive around in the SUV. I turn to her and I go, I don't see the fucking point. Me having to get my license. I have a learner's permit. As long as you are sitting next to me, I can use the car. You just have to sit next to me. I don't see the whole point. She goes, Jess, look, you want this marriage to work. I need you to do this. You promised. I'll admit, part of me was hoping I would weasel out of it. She knows how afraid I am. She knows it terrifies me. And I thought, you accepted this. You've been with me this long, a little over six years. We should be able to keep this going. Janine wasn't having it. She would not let me get out of my promise. And I knew that I would have to keep my promise to keep this marriage. I go, all right, fine. And then I parked the SUV. I don't ever practice with her again because it's not good anymore. Like she can't like help me out, but the national safety council guys are helping me out and they're awesome. They're experts and they're getting me to the point where I feel comfortable taking my test. So it's that Saturday morning, I'm taking my test. I'm doing everything that I should be doing. I reverse in a straight line without any problems. I'm following all the rules of the road, I do my emergency stop. I'm more freaked out about the parking because of the cones. One of the ways that you automatically fail your driving test is you hit the cones when you park. You hit it, you're done, that's it, you automatically fail. Another way that you automatically fail is if you hit the curb during your three-point turn. I'm about to do my three-point turn, and I'm getting myself set up, and just as I'm about to, like, park to get myself set up for the three-point turn, I hit the curb, and I freeze. I have just automatically failed this test. Oh, fuck. Oh, fuck. I have failed this driving test. I am not going to get my license. I have to go back into Janine and let her know that I failed. She is going to be leaving me. This marriage is not going to be saved. I am so fucked. This relationship is so fucked right now. My proctor doesn't say anything at all. So then I start realizing, okay, he hasn't failed me. We're still here. I'm just going to go ahead and do the three-point turn, and we're going to see what happens. I do the three-point turn perfectly. Don't hit the curb during the turn. The thing I was most worried about is the parking, and I nail it. I ace it. I squeeze into those cones perfectly. The thing that I was most terrified about, I am in there. It is awesome. I'm feeling great. I get to the parking lot back at the National Safety Council. I turn off the ignition. The proctor. He's just writing some things on his clipboard. He turns over to me and he goes I'm only going to deduct 12 points since you hit the curb before the three point turn. Congratulations. You passed. And I I don't believe him. I'm like in the back of my head I'm going no. There is no way. I can't. No, 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 no. There is no way. There's no way that I've passed this. It doesn't sink in until we go inside and he hands me this piece of paper that I'm going to give to the DMV on as soon as I can, that is going to convert my learner's permit to a full blown driver's license. And I walk out of there and as I'm waiting for an Uber to pick me up after this, I'm looking down at this piece of paper and I start sobbing. I did it. I got my full-blown driver's license. This is something that I never thought would ever be possible. I have accepted for a long time that I was never going to drive and I would have to make accommodations to make that happen. And here I have this paper that says, I'm going to go get my license. This is a a fear that I've held onto for 31 years. And I did it. This is the mountain, the unclimbable mountain that I have climbed. I did this for love. I did this because I love Janine so much and I really wanted to save this marriage. Trying to save this marriage made this possible. Love made this possible. I just couldn't stop crying because I did it. And yet our marriage doesn't get better. Our, Our sex life backslides to the way it was back when we were married again. And we keep having these same conversations over and over Jeanine, you promised we would have sex like once or twice a week as part of staying in this marriage. I got my license. I don't understand why you're not able to keep up things on your end. And she goes, but I'm wearing sexier things in bed. And I go, yeah, I appreciate that. Thank you. But I've given you what you need with me having a license and I'm able to do things now and take care of things more. But you're not you're not keeping your promise. And she goes, I know. I'll try. And this happens for months and months and months. And I don't think Janine expected me to get my license. I almost felt like that she thought that I would fail. And then she would feel good about divorcing me. About ending this particular marriage. Because I wasn't giving her what she needed. And I felt like she was trying to weasel her way out of what she promised. And I get fed up. And I decide that, okay, I'm going to go see if I can get what I need elsewhere. So I go on dating apps and start looking for for that intimacy that I've been craving. But I don't put my face on the dating apps. Right. Like, how, how does that work? How can you get dates on a dating app without putting your face on there? One, just being honest about what you're looking for and being honest about the situation that you're in. I'm looking for a no strings attached situation. I'm in a marriage that's kind of dying. Because there are other people out there who feel the same way. I end up meeting this woman, Abby. She has green eyes. She looks like the type of woman that you would find as an extra on Mad Men as part of the secretarial pool. This absolute, just classic knockout. And she's in a similar situation where her marriage is also dying And she's starting to date and get back out there. I explain my situation to her. I tell her everything that's happened. And she's totally sympathetic to me. And we exchange numbers so that way she can actually see what I look like for the first time. So I send her my picture and she responds back, you're handsome. And, and here I am, this bearded, chubby, middle-aged man with this woman who thinks like I am absolutely hot shit. And it's making me feel things that I haven't felt in a long, long time. So I arranged a meeting with Abby at a local taco place. And as I'm walking up, I see Abby. She is pacing around outside waiting for me. She is wearing a ratty Tampa Bay Double Rays t-shirt because she's a big baseball fan and just torn jeans. Things that you wouldn't normally wear on a first date with someone. And I thought that was absolutely sexy, that this woman... This woman gave no fucks about trying to be appealing, looking appealing, that she was so comfortable and confident in her skin that she was just going to wear whatever she could find on the floor of her bedroom or living room. And I'm already like... My heart is already racing because I'm like, oh my god, this woman is even sexier in person. I, I just... Oh, boy. So when our eyes meet, I realize I am going to cross a line. I am absolutely okay with crossing this line. No matter what happens between me and Abby, whether it's we only have this one meet and that's it, we're done, or we do anything more than that. This marriage is over.
0: This week's episode, folks, this is Pretenders Behind Me Now, and we just heard from Jesse Bradley. Don't forget, Jesse is the author of the novel Teenage Wasteland, an American love story from Whiskey Tit Books. And you can find his cartoons on Instagram at Questionable Decision Comics. Oh boy, I could relate to so much of Jesse's story. You know, it wasn't until just several years ago when a risk listener <laughs> wrote in saying she thought I should go get diagnosed to see if I had ADHD and then got diagnosed as being on the deeper end of the spectrum for it that I realized that's it. That's why I did not learn how to drive. That's what was going on there. A therapist once asked me, you know, why? Why on earth do you think you can't drive like everyone can? And I said, "Well, I just have this very certain precognition that I'd kill someone." She said, "All right, that's good enough." <laughs> And that story was edited by John LaSala on the voice track there and by Taj Easton on the music and sound design. Folks, don't forget that October 20th is when Risk returns to Caveat in New York City for our 7 p.m. Eastern show if you can't be there in person, you can see it live streamed and you can get your tickets for either the in-person show or the live stream at risk-show.com tour. That's October 20th and it's our Scary Stories evening. And if you've never visited the thestorystudio.org, get on over there. There's so many opportunities. There's a two-day level one live online group storytelling workshop with Amy Salloway coming up on October 18th and October 20th. Amy is a phenomenal teacher. And you know, we also do corporate workshops. We custom tailor workshops for particular businesses to help them be a little bit more human and emotional with the way they communicate in their work. That is all at thestorystudio.org. And don't forget you can hire me, one-on-one for storytelling training you can find me at kevinallison.com and follow us on our socials on instagram twitter and facebook we're at risk show on twitter and instagram i'm at the kevin allison and everything you might want to know about the show all the tables of contents of the episodes and all the ways to reach us and lots of storytelling resources tips on how to Write your own story, it can all be found at risk show.com. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk.